What happened to all the dinosaurs? What was the best thing before sliced bread? But some questions are more important than others. How do I forgive someone even when I feel like I can't? What's my purpose in life? How can I be the parent God wants me to be and the one my kids need me to be? So where do we turn? To the one that has all the answers. We'll tackle some of life's most complex issues and discover God's best plan. Why? Because you asked for it. Good morning, everybody. Um, you're going to have to give me a second here because my husband helped me pull up my message notes, but it's the wrong message. <laughs> so I got to find the other one. <laughs> Just give me a second here. Uh, oh, okay. Here you take it. Good morning. I want to start off this morning, and I planned this from the top. This is my big opener. This message is rated PG-13. So just know that we have wonderful kids programs if your kids are under 13 and you don't want them to hear sensitive content. If you don't care and you're good to have conversations with them afterwards, that's fine. But it is rated PG-13 today because we're talking about marriage. So I want to start off with this. Some of you might have the YouVersion Bible app. Does anyone have the YouVersion Bible app or use it on the computer? You can read the Bible digitally on your phone or tablet or computer, and you can highlight it. So what I personally like to do, I like colors, but I don't want it to go crazy. I want it to be, like, organized. So what I do is as I'm reading, I highlight in a light yellow and then a light blue and then a light yellow, and, then a light, and I just rotate through my light yellow and light blue, and it's, Beautiful and wonderful and gorgeous. And I messed it up a little bit because for a while I put my phone in grayscale mode because it's supposed to give you less dopamine hits when you're scrolling through and I wanted to not be so addicted to my phone. So I put it in grayscale, but then it messed up all my highlights. So I'm back in color and I'm doing light yellow, light blue, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But there's one topic that I highlight in pink. So it's not just my little neutral light, 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 um, yellow, and blues. I get pink. So anytime I'm reading through and I see a pink pop out out of nowhere, I know it's on something very specific. I highlight anything the Bible has to say about women in pink. Very standalone, stand apart. Anytime the Bible mentions anything about women, females, wives, mothers, daughters, or, um, or marriage, or let's see, what else in pink might I do? Anytime it mentions the name of a woman, because that doesn't happen very often in that cultural period, I highlight it in pink because I want it to stand up and I want it to stand apart. Why do I want it to stand apart? Because I want the truth of who I am to cut through the noise of what this world tells me I'm supposed to be. I want the truth of who I am and who I'm supposed to be, who I'm made to be, built to be, to cut through all the noise of what this world and the culture and other people try to say I'm supposed to be. So today, my challenge to everyone in this room, not just if you're married or not, everyone in this room is to set aside everything you think you know about marriage. Every reason why this message applies to you or doesn't apply to you. Everything you think you know about what it means to be a husband or a wife. If you're a wife, I want you to knock the chip off your shoulder that says that you're entitled to this, that, or the other. If you're a husband, I want you to pause and think that you don't actually have it all figured out and stop for a minute. If you are married, not married, whatever, stop right now, set aside for the next 30 minutes 
what you think marriage, being a husband, and how you relate to all of it is supposed to be. And let's, for a little while, try to figure out the truth of God's word to cut through our noise. Because sometimes the noise comes from us and our false beliefs or our barriers or our walls. So now I'm going to take a pause. This is a long introduction with a lot of little disclaimers to set the stage. I want to take a pause. Any of you divorced or widowed, I'm going to tell you why this is not your time to tune out. Okay, I'm going to tell you why this is not your time to tune out on this one. Here's some stats. 67.54 million men are married in this country. 68.33 million women are married in this country. That is a lot of people. You will interact with them sometime, whether you are married or not yourself. There are reasons why... Uh, people divorce, and I want to tell you why some of the reasons are. Why do some marriages fail? Why do they end? 55% of one study said that it's because they're growing apart. Just simply growing apart. Over half of the people in this particular study. Another study found that not being able to talk together, just not being able to have a conversation with one another, it's 53%. Another one said 40% got a divorce because of how their spouse handled money. 40%. 85% in one study said that there was a lack of commitment. Just in general. That's not necessarily infidelity, but in general, a lack of commitment to the marriage. 61% of the study said that one of the reasons they divorced was too much conflict or arguing. And 58% of a study found that one of the reasons that couples divorce was for infidelity or extramarital affairs. All of these numbers are very high reasons why these 67 and 68 million people that you know or are may have gotten a divorce or will get a divorce. And so it's important. It impacts people, us. It impacts people we love. It impacts people we speak into the lives of. I have godly single men and women in my life and just because they are single and aren't currently married or maybe haven't ever been married, it doesn't mean I exclude them from my life, even though a large part of my life is through this lens of being a married woman, right? That's a very big factor of who I am. All my decisions run through that, run through the idea that I am married, I have commitments, I have responsibilities, I have people that I'm in relationship through, but I still have godly single men and women in my life that I talk to about my life. And so they're in on that with me. They're in on it with me. They help me out. They speak into my life. Singleness does not disqualify you from speaking into the life of your married friends. It does not disqualify you from influencing marriages for the kingdom. It does not disqualify you. You can lead out of your singleness for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom regardless of your marital status. Singleness doesn't make you a second-class citizen. And a lot of times in the church, unfortunately, it feels like that. Whether you've never got married, whether you're widowed, whether you're divorced, it feels like all of a sudden you're second class or worse. The first 1,500 years of the Christian church, single people sat in front and married people sat in back because it was considered more holy to be single. You were considered a better Christian, closer to God, if you were single. 
And then around the Reformation time, 500 or so years ago, when Martin Luther hit the scene and there was the Reformation and they broke off from the Catholic Church and all of that happened, all of a sudden they started viewing married people as holier and more close to God. The point is neither one got it right. They just swung the pendulum back and forth. Really, your marital status doesn't determine your holiness or your closeness with God. Your relationship with God determines your closeness with God and your holiness with, with God. So we don't need this pendulum swing. We need each other, regardless of what our life circumstances are. The Bible says we are all one body and we have many parts, many differences, many uh, different life experiences, gifts, uh, things to pull from in our life to bless and encourage one another. We also don't throw out or discount a section of the Bible just because it doesn't seem to directly be talking to me. So just because if you are not married and you're sitting here today and we're talking about marriage, it doesn't mean you're just going to be like, eh, I'm not going to read that Bible passage or learn what God has to say about it because I'm not married. You know, it doesn't apply. You know, no, we read the whole Bible. If that was true, we'd have to throw out like 95% of the Bible because in all honesty, most of the Bible is not written directly to us. Maybe all of it. <laughs> There's very little of the Bible that's like Kyle Sadler. I have a word for you. The Bible is not written directly to Kyle. Most of it's written to specific people groups, churches, persons. A lot of it's just a recording of some other guy's story that happened. Most of it's not written directly to us. And we live in this very self-centered, 21st century American westernized culture that is all about me. And so suddenly we think that the Bible is all about us. It's not. It's all about God. The Bible is all about God. And the thing is, when we read the whole of the Bible and don't throw out parts that we don't think are related to us or we don't like it or it kind of rubs me wrong, we start to learn more of who God is because we realize it's all about him. It's not all about us. It's not all about that issue. It's not all about that person or that sin or that win. It's all about God. And when we can take all of it and read all of it, we get to know more about who God is. I don't think that any of us like go stalk someone's Facebook and we read everything they post and we're like, oh my goodness, they're talking to me. I hope not, because that maybe you're paranoid at that point. If you're like, oh my goodness, that Facebook status was all about me. Every single one of those Facebook statuses are, and all of these pictures are passive aggressively pointing at me. No, that's not how we read it. We don't read the Bible that way either. We don't read a biography thinking, this person's life is just all about me. No, we don't do that. That's ridiculous. That's delusional. But for some reason, we read the Bible that way. For some reason, we read the Bible that way. All of it can have an implication to us, but only in the fact that it helps us know who God is, and God wants a personal relationship with us. So we've got to read it with the lens of getting to know God better. So the point is, we shouldn't be reading the Bible assuming it's 100% written specifically and directly for us. It's not. It's just not. A lot of the New Testament has to so-and-so. If you haven't noticed, that so-and-so isn't your name. <laughs> it's just not written directly to us. But it lets us know who God is because it's from God to whoever, and we get to know more about that person. My dad recently discovered a whole bunch of love letters that my grandparents wrote back and forth to one another. Now, if I wanted to read those letters and think that they were talking to me, gross. That would not go over well, okay, because they are some nice love letters. You know, I haven't read them, but I've heard. They're some really good love letters from when they first got married and then he got deployed. And 
I could read those letters and say that they're all about me, but they're not. I wasn't even on the scene yet. My dad wasn't even on the scene yet. But I could read those love letters and get to know more about the character of my grandparents, get to know more about the quality of their relationship, the nature of their love, and then I know more about where I come from and how what they are and went through led to me who I am today and what's going to be passed on to my family. I get to know that. That's how we want to read the Bible, to get to know more of the character of God. So we read the Bible to get to know God. So married or not, agree or disagree with the things I'm about to say, what God has to say about husbands, wives, and marriage teaches us about who he is. So the task today is to see what God has to say about marriage and the role of husbands and wives within marriage, what that tells us about who God is, and then what we do about it. So for the wives today, ask yourselves, how do I need to be more Christ-like in my role as a wife? For the husbands, how do I need to be more Christ-like in my role as a husband? For the singles, and really all of us, what does God's heart for marriage tell me about who he is and what his character is? And how do I know him better because of this? How does this impact how I relate to people and the world around me? So that's my really long intro. Point one. Point one, if you have your notes, there's fill in the blank. Number one, marriage isn't all about you. Marriage isn't all about you. We live in this world today, again, that's all about me, 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 give me, give me, give me, I want, I want, right? When uh, Instagram profiles are filled of mostly selfies, that's the kind of age that we live in. But marriage isn't all about you. In this culture, we just want whatever makes you happy. Marriage needs to make me happy. If that person makes you happy, go for it. If it feels like it makes you happy, go. Thing is, happiness is very temporary and fleeting. Marriage is meant to be forever commitment through sickness and in health, through good times and bad. And if we just go with what makes us healthy, that is built on a foundation of less than sand. If it's just what our mood is that day. So let me tell you, the second your wife gets pregnant, phew, let me tell you, it is out the window. My mood's been going like this lately. If you haven't heard, I'm pregnant. So my mood's been going like this lately. And then when I'm nauseated on top of that, mm-mm, I'm not happy. I am not happy. So if our marriage was built on happiness, we would have been done in over a long time ago. And the whole world would have said, well, that's fine. He doesn't make you happy anymore. This marriage doesn't make you happy anymore. It's fine. Marriage isn't about your happiness. Marriage is about your holiness. Marriage isn't to make you happy. Marriage is to make you holy. One of the things I found out in our, probably our first or second year of marriage, Kyle and I got in this real big fight, no clue what it was about, because it probably didn't matter, huge fight, and I was like, get away from me, and I pushed him out the door, I closed myself in the bathroom, I had been screaming and saying horrible things to him, and then I noticed myself in the mirror, and all of a sudden, I came face to face with my ugliness. Now, I'm not talking about my physical ugliness, I'm talking about my sinful nature, how mean I can really get. And some of you have had those moments where you've come face to face and seen essentially the devil in you, how bad it can really be. And this is what I tell people, marriage is like a mirror. It doesn't necessarily make you better, at least not at the start, but what it does do is make you more of who you already are. It shows you who you already are. And if you don't do anything actively to work on it, it's just going to continue to make you more of that ugly mess you see in the mirror instead of make you better and help make your spouse better as well through the process. 
Marriage is a mirror that shows us who we already are. In Ephesians 5, which we've talked about Ephesians 5 a couple other times when we went through the book of Ephesians and so on. But in Ephesians 5, it's this famous section of the Bible that is talking about husbands do this, wives do this. It's infamously where it says, wives submit to your husbands. People like to leave out husbands, go die on a cross like Jesus for your wives. I mean, that's a big deal also. So there's both. There's both give and take. We'll get into that later. But what it comes down to after it goes into wives do this, husbands do this, it says, but I'm actually talking about Christ in the church. I'm actually talking about Christ. So he gives all of these things to do in a marriage for husbands and wives. And it says, actually, this is just an illustration. This is just a picture. This is just a big stage play. The husbands, the wives, in their marriages, they are putting on a play to the world to show and tell God's relationship he wants to have with you. So the way marriage was designed to be is that the husband loves and treats the wife and gives himself for the wife in the same way that Jesus sacrificially gave himself for the church, his bride, for all of us. And it's talked about as his bride. It talks about having a marriage supper once, uh, once, you know, time is done here and we're all in heaven. It talks about having a marriage supper with Jesus where he and his church, all through the Old Testament, God refers to Israel, his people, as his bride. He calls them an, uh, an unfaithful people, an unfaithful bride. I'll go rescue you back. I want your commitment, your marriage commitment. You've been adulterous. It talks about all of these things that are in this context of a marriage paradigm. So really, it's not just about me and my specific marriage. The Bible actually says there's no marriage in heaven. So we can say marriage is forever. It's actually just till we die. And then we go to heaven and we're married to Jesus instead. So our marriage here is actually very temporary. We want it to be lifelong, right? But it's actually very temporary in the grand scheme of things. But it's very important because it's meant to be, and why it's the longest lasting relationship, how it's meant to be, is to show us the seriousness of God's relationship he wants to have with us. Instead of it being about us, it's really about Jesus in the church. Isaiah 62, 5 says, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. It's a picture of God's relationship with us. And that's why we have so much of a hard time understanding the real relationship God wants to have with us is because our parents, married or not, very imperfect people. All on different levels, all in different trauma scales. But our parents messed things up. I know my parents are going to be watching this later today, and they would be shaking their heads and say that they messed things up too. And I know me and Kyle are messing things up for our kids too. We're trying to do what we can. We're trying to be better people all the time. But we make mistakes and we're all imperfect. None of us are completely sanctified, holy, and righteous at this moment. And so we end up having flawed idea of what marriage is supposed to be, which then according to the Bible is a picture of God's relationship. So we have this flawed picture of what God's relationship with us is supposed to be. And that's why we end up having this hard time because you might notice the way, the, what you struggle with your relationship with God is probably something that you struggled with your parents or that your parents struggled with one another. You have trouble trusting. You don't think God's really always there for you because your dad walked out. 
You don't think God's going to stick around when it's hard because your mom abandoned you young. You think God's actually just out to hurt you and punish you and discipline you because you got the belt as a kid. Whatever it is, you might struggle with your relationship with God because of your parents' example. And it's the parent-child relationship, but it's also the marriage relationship. That is huge. So number two, marriage is a partnership. So marriage isn't all about you. It's really a picture of Jesus, and that has to be our framework first, is to know that marriage is meant to be a picture of our relationship with Jesus, the ideal he wants us to have. So every point after this, we need to see through the lens of marriage is really about Jesus and my relationship, what it's supposed to be, what he wants it to be. So number two, marriage is a partnership. In Genesis chapter 2, right after God created the world, he created man and woman, he gives them jobs. It never says, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, so I won't hit it home anymore, but it talks about how they had to work in the garden, name the animals, take care and steward everything. That was their work. That was their job. That was taking care of their home. It never distinguished it that Adam's role was this and Eve's role was that. They were very distinct in their maleness and their femaleness. That was distinct because it wasn't good for just the man to be there. He needed a partner suitable for him. But the word helper that's used, he needed a helper suitable for him. The word helper that's used is actually in the original Hebrew, a word that's used everywhere else in the Bible to talk about um, the aid that you need in war to get you through the war and to fight your battle. It's actually a helper position of strength, partnership, and fight is what the, it was not good for him to be alone. So he created a basically war tool, (laughs) war partner with him. But we're meant to partner together. We're meant to do the work of creation and purpose and calling together. That's going to look different because all of us have different roles and responsibilities and callings and gifts and experience that we pull from. So even female to female, it's going to look different. So definitely female to male, it's also going to look different. And we have different roles. But we're meant to be partners together and sharing the work of God together. How does this look for our relationship with Jesus? If all of this is really supposed to be a picture of our relationship with Jesus. Jesus wants us to be partners with him in the work he's doing in this world. He doesn't just come down and do it all. He wants us to take part in it with him. That's why he said, follow me. He invited people into the mission with him. He didn't just come down and do it all himself. He could have, easy. But he didn't want that. He wanted it to be in partnership. Jesus also said this about marriage, Matthew 19, four through six. says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We're supposed to come together as one in a marriage. We're supposed to function as one. We're supposed to operate together. It's no longer two independent lives. It's walking in tandem with one another. It's being there for each other. It's two heads are better than one. It's always having someone to pick you up when you fall. It's always having someone to share the load with you no matter what the season of life you're in looks like. Marriage isn't 50-50, it's 100-100. Marriage isn't meant to be 50-50. Well, I'll give half, you give half. Marriage is meant to be, I'll give my all, you give your all. We'll both give 100-100. 
That's what it's meant to be. And that's why in Ephesians 5, it talks about wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, give yourself as a sacrifice. Give your life as a sacrifice. It's 100-100. He talks about it in two different ways because it's, again, a picture of Christ and the church. And so that is a little bit different how it plays out for wives and husbands, but it's still 100-100. That we are to give 100-100 to make it work, to make it last. And he says, let not man separate. Let no one separate what God has joined together. So Kyle and I decided a long time ago, we might have even still been dating when we talked about this, I don't know, but we decided a long time ago, no matter what, we're not going to be quick to divorce. Divorce isn't really an option. There are a couple of biblical grounds for divorce. But even then, we said even then, if something were to happen, we're like, and we're never going to do this. But if something were to happen down the road and there's biblical grounds for divorce, we're going to commit to doing everything we still can to try and work it out. That's what we wanted to do. That's what we felt, even with the biblical grounds. There are biblical grounds for divorce. But even with that, we personally wanted to do everything to make it work. So if for us, divorce isn't an option, that means we're stuck together for the rest of our lives. So if we're stuck together for the rest of our lives, why not make it fun? Why not enjoy it? Why not work on it? Why not grow as people and make the other better as people too? It's hard. It's not easy. It is a lot of work. It's a lot of pain sometimes. We both hurt each other. A lot of times, most of the time, instead of giving 100 to 100, we try to take. And that's what happens when you might only be in it 50-50. You end up trying to take to make up the other 50 of yourself. We're not meant to find someone to complete us. We're meant to be two complete people coming together to make a complete relationship. If we're not already complete coming into it, then it's going to drain. It's going to drain the relationship and each other either way. Because it's an expectation that can't be fulfilled by anyone but God. Number two, marriage is a partnership. Number three, sex is important. Number three, sex is important. Now, some of you have heard the story of how Moxie came to be in this earth. And you might have been thinking, I know, I'm pretty sure we told Diana about this, like the first time we were ever in Fort Madison. And so some people are probably like, I knew she was going to say this at some point and do this to the church. And this is the day. I'm not actually going to do it. Don't worry. But uh, the way that we uh, came to be with Moxie is that our pastor gave our church, he was doing a series on marriage, a whole like six-week series or something. And he gave, he's actually coming next week, so you can give him a hard time about this. Um, he gave our whole church a challenge called the seven-day sex challenge. And everyone who was married had to have sex every day for seven days in a row. And there was one guy in the back who jumped up and started hooting and hollering when he said that. And me and Kyle were like, well, we're going to do this. First day, bam, pregnant. It was insane. Ugh. So that's how we got Moxie. Thank you, Moxie. We love you. Thank you, Pastor Kyle, for that wonderful challenge that gave us our precious Moxie. But I'm not going to give you a sex challenge today. Don't worry about it. But it's to show sex is important in a marriage and in a relationship. So number three, sex is important. Hebrews 13:4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and, adul and adulterous. The reason I put this verse in here is because it's very blunt. It just says it how it is. And it's not me saying it. It's God saying it. <laughs> and he says, let the marriage bed be held sacred by all. So the marriage bed being the sexual relationship, the intimate relationship, it includes emotional, 
the intimate relationship that's meant only for a husband and wife, let it be held sacred for everyone. That means the people within the marriage. You're not bringing anyone else into that bed. That doesn't mean the bed in your master bedroom at home. That means into your marriage, sexual, intimate relationship. You're not bringing anyone into that. That means those who are not married, that you are not defiling the marriage bed by having sex outside of marriage. Outside of that. Now, why is that important? Because that's really harsh in this culture that we're in. And it's hard to say and it's hard to bring up. It is. But the reason for that is because, again, we're talking about the lens of my relationship with my spouse is meant to be a picture to the world of who God is and the relationship he wants with me. My God does not ask to take anything deep, personal, and intimate of me without committing to me to the point of death on a cross and all eternity. He commits in covenant to me. Marriage was not meant to be a contract, and that's what it is. And when marriage is just a contract, it's just a piece of paper. It doesn't matter when we have sex or don't or what we call marriage or not. Marriage, though, was meant what it was originally designed to be. So I'm not talking about your signed paper contract. Your marriage before God was meant to be a covenant. Now let me give you an example of the difference between a covenant and a contract. We're all familiar with contracts. Anytime you don't like it anymore, you get a lawyer and you break it. Done. Easy, just a sign of the paper. It makes everything not that important. Legally binding, maybe, but not that important otherwise. A covenant first started when God made a covenant with Abraham. He promised that he would give him a son and he would have descendants and bless those descendants to be a great nation, which turned out into be Israel. And so much has happened with Israel. So that blessing obviously came to fruition. But how it started was God said, take these animals, cut them down the middle, head to toe, set their bodies apart, and there's a pool of blood in between that made a walkway. Abraham was to walk through, and then a torch that represented the presence of God God himself came. You didn't see it, but the torch like floated through the, um, this is in the Bible, look it up, uh, in between the animals also. And the covenant was this. If I do not hold up my end of the deal, may what happened to these animals happen to me. That is not, oh, I signed a piece of paper. I don't like it anymore. I'm hiring a lawyer and we're done. Marriage was meant to be a covenant. And what I don't want you to hear is condemnation if you've been married and it hasn't worked. The old is gone, the new has come in Jesus. Period, the end, done. But as we are sitting here now, as we're looking forward, this is the word of God for you. He wants our marriage to be, and some people, we had this involved in our marriage vows, and some people were like, oh, that's extreme. But what is for better or for worse in sickness and health till death do us part actually saying? We just said it in a more severe way. We said all those things and then we said, may the Lord deal with me ever so severely if anything but death separate us. We said that before God. We said, God, deal with us ever so severely if anything other than death separates us. We're inviting God's punishment on us if we don't hold up our end of the barn because that's what marriage was supposed to be. Why? Because marriage is supposed to be a picture of what God thinks and feels towards you. What he wants for you. And he is not willing to ask you to give anything of yourselves, even though he deserves it. And it's his right. Honestly, he's God. He made you. You wouldn't be here without him. 
but he's not going to ask you to give your whole life to him without him sacrificing first, without him being beaten, bruised, sliced up, crucified, tortured, and killed. He's done his end of the covenant. And to be honest, Abraham broke his end of the covenant, and God gave him grace. So God has grace for you. Whatever your history, whatever your current is, whatever your past, your present, God has grace for you because he wants you to walk into a new future. The way that he has for you. It's the best way because it's his way, and we were not asked to like Jesus. We were asked to follow him. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, like me. It says we love because he first loved us. So once we accept his love, we can't help but love him back. And the more we get to know him, the more we love him back. But we weren't asked to love him. We were just asked to do what he says. <laughs> that may sound harsh and cold, but once you start to do it and get to know him, more than the doing, the getting to know him, then the more it comes with the relationship. Next, 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5. This is still on sex is important. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So that is uh, condoning monogamous marriages, just in case you were wondering about polygamy. Um, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority on her own body, but the husband does. Continue. Likewise, the husband also does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of the lack of self-control. So he might ask us to abstain from sex before marriage because he wants us to tell the truth about who he is to the world, that he's not willing to take something to us without a covenant, right? But then after we are in covenant... It is no holds bar. It is good to go. Anything that is mutually between both of you doesn't invite anyone else into the marriage bed, including inviting digital images of people who are likely trafficked and abused or traumatized into your marriage bed. Do not incorporate pornography, in case you didn't get what that is. Okay? That's bringing someone into your marriage bed and defiling it. But we are given in marriage, like in our relationship with God, I have given, it says, let your... Let your body be a sacrifice of worship to the Lord. I have given him my whole self, my spirit, my mind, my soul, my body to the Lord. So just as in that, so marriage is meant to be a picture that I have given my body to my husband. That does not mean rape is a thing. That is not okay. Because again, the Bible says, yes, wives submit to your husbands. But it also says husbands are to love your wife as you love your own body. And you would not ever do anything to hurt your own body. So we're trying to make sure that we're living a life in our marriages that reflects God and who he is. There's another verse on there I'm not going to read right now, but it's basically talking about enjoy your wife. It says enjoy the wife of your youth, which means that he's talking to someone who's older now, and you can still enjoy each other, okay? Number four, spirituality is important. Spirituality is important. We've already talked about Ephesians 5, and Ephesians 5 talks about how our spirituality shows um, what marriage is supposed to be like, what our relationship with God is supposed to be like, and vice versa. There is a verse here to those who are married with an unbelieving spouse. 1 Corinthians 7, uh, well, we'll skip that one. First Peter 3, 1 through 5 says, In the same way you wives must accept the authority of your husbands, then even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives 
will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. There's also a passage in 1 Corinthians 7, if you want to read that too, that talks more about that. If you're married to someone who doesn't also believe. It's saying that our character can win over our unbelieving spouse. It's not a promise that it will happen, but it's saying don't give up, hang in there. It also says if your unbelieving spouse doesn't want to stay with you anymore, then divorce is permissible in those circumstances, but not for the, un for the believing spouse to leave their spouse, unless there are biblical grounds like infidelity, etc. Number five today is character matters. Character matters. Colossians 3.18 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands should have, um, and this is my note, not the Bible, but I say husbands should have the same character, if not better, inside the home. Their character in the home should be as good as outside, if not better. That the way they treat their wife and their kids is far and beyond what they treat even a stranger on the street. And that's a big challenge. But that's what it says, do, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. There's more verses coming up that speak to the same. Proverbs 19.14 says, house and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Talking about prudent, being wise, being discerning, making good choices. Um, a wife of noble character who can find, the Bible says. First Peter 3, 1 through 5 says, Do not be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. It doesn't say don't have those things, but don't make that your concern. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so pre precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters when you do what is right without fear of what your husband might do. So character, strength of character is important. Something that's important to note here, husbands, marriage impacts, this is another fill in the blank, marriage impacts your relationship with God. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner. This just means literally, physically, for the most part, women don't have as much muscle mass, <laughs> is what that means. Treat them with respect as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. You catch the last part. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. How you treat your wife affects whether your prayers are getting through or not. So your, your marriage actually has an impact on the quality and the ability of your marriage or your relationship with God to grow. Because he's saying, husbands, you're supposed to be treating your wife like I treat the church. And so if anything's coming between that, there's something coming between me and you. So husbands, marriage impacts your relationship with God. Wives, marriage mirrors your relationship with God. Marriage mirrors your relationship with God. Like we've talked about in Ephesians 5, it says, submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ. Our relationship with our husband is meant to be a mirror of what our spiritual life already is. So if I want my marriage to improve, it is better for me to go into the prayer closet with God and work on my relationship with God then I am going to become a better person that will then impact and reflect its way into how I treat and interact with my husband. So if I want to be a better wife, I've got to start first by being a better, uh, having a better relationship with God. 
Who you are as a wife to your husband is a reflection of your own relationship with God. And it speaks to the world about who God is. Number six, wives are a blessing. This is my last point. And I'm not just saying this because I am the wife half of the pastors of the church up here saying it. But I'm saying it because it's one of the common themes that come out in the Bible about marriage. Wives are a blessing. Proverbs 18:22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So the point to husbands, your wife is a gift from God to be treasured. Treasure her. She's a gift. Period. Done. It doesn't say... He who finds a certain type of description wife finds a good thing. He who finds a wife, no description necessary, finds a good thing. Now the point to the women, wives out there, act like it. You're a blessing to your husband. You're meant to be a treasure. So act like it. Act like you're meant to be a treasure. Proverbs 27, 15, and 16 says, A quarrelsome wife is as annoying as a constant dripping on a rainy day. Stopping her complaints is like trying to stop the wind or trying to hold something with greased hands. Proverbs 21, 9 says, It's better to live in a corner of the housetop, the roof, than an in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. It's pretty specific examples, I would say. So wives, you're a treasure. No ifs, ands, or buts about it, but please act like it, okay? Because we're meant to be the picture, wives, we are meant to be the picture of the bride of Jesus. We are meant to be a picture of the church of Christ to the world. And when we don't act like that, essentially we lie about what the object is of Christ's affection. Now in a way, the object of Christ's affection in the church is very flawed but we're supposed to do our best to represent the ideal because the role of husbands is to tell the world the truth about how much Christ loves his church. His imper- and guys, I think that's why it doesn't give qualifiers for what kind of wife is a treasure. Because we know Jesus' bride is pretty messed up. It's not a good church. It's not a good bride. It's just the church is his bride, period. No ands, ifs, or buts, for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, good, bad, and the ugly. He's in it. And the role of the husbands is honestly harder (laughs) because it's give yourself up as a sacrifice, just like Jesus did, and love her all of her flaws every time she betrays you. There's a whole book in the Bible about this concept of marriage is a picture of the way God loves us. It's the book of Hosea where God actually sends a prophet to go marry a prostitute. He bought her, married her. One of their kids is actually named Not My Son because she kept going back to the life. She kept cheating on him, selling herself back to prostitution, all these things. And he constantly stood there with her. He constantly loved her. Now, I'm not saying... I'm not saying that we all need to go to that extreme. One of the most obvious grounds for divorce in the Bible is infidelity. So I'm not saying we all need to stick with that, but I'm saying that's how God will stick with you. That's how God will stick with you. And we don't need to put ourselves through emotional trauma of all of this. We don't need to put ourselves through that of the infidelity, but we need to give 100 100 And we need to know that God's in it with you no matter what. He's not divorcing you. 
he's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. He's not going to do what you watched your mom or your dad do. He's not going to do what your spouse did to you. He's the ideal version of what the husband is supposed to be. He is the best and all the best of what it is, not our broken version of it. If you can bow your head and close your eyes. Today, more than anything, when we read the Bible and anything God has to say about marriage and husbands and wives, the main thing he wants to get through to you is how much he's in it with you and for you. No matter what this world or a person has lied to you about what it actually means to be a good husband, whether you're a husband or a wife or not any of the above, what it means to be a good husband, no matter what this world has lied to you about in the way they live it out, he's in it with you and for you no matter what, and he will never leave you or forsake you. So today, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, and knowing what it's supposed to be, what we talked about today is what, not just how we as husbands and wives play it out, but it's, it's mainly about how Jesus wants to play out his relationship with you. And knowing what that is, if you today want to start a relationship with him on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand just as a first step, just as a symbol. On the count of three, if that's you, one, two, three, raise your hand if that's you and you want to make that choice today. Okay, you can put your hands down. Could we all just repeat this prayer together, just recommitting our lives to the Lord with any of those who are doing it for the first time? Dear Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you've saved me. Thank you that you've forgiven me. Thank you that you've given me grace. Thank you that you're in it with me and for me. And you'll never leave me. Today I commit myself to you. All of me, no matter what comes, I'm in it with you too. I love you.